You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. kind of working our way slowly but steadily uh, through a series of messages based on the Old Testament book of Ezra. And last Saturday, we kind of started looking at some of the delays and the detours, the Jewish exiles, those who uh, went from Babylon, that captivity in Babylon, and returned back to their homeland there in Jerusalem to begin the rebuilding of the temple, to restore uh, that great nation once again. And we were kind of focusing on chapters four through six, um, and as they kind of began that work uh, there in the temple. And the reason the delays and detours they faced and why I want to take time to kind of look at those is because they really are some of the same detours and delays uh, that we face as we follow after God's plan for our lives. As we seek to have God's plans and purposes fulfilled in our lives, we too will encounter the same kind of delays and detours they did. And we also want to kind of look at what was their response in the midst of those uh, delays and those detours. And here's one of the main points we see operating there in Ezra chapters four through six. And, and we can even see that in our own story, in our own experience, in our own walk with God. And that is, is that opportunity and opposition always go together. And it seems wherever you have the opportunity, it's not long before opposition comes along. Opportunity and opposition always kind of seem to go together hand in hand. Where you find one, you'll find the other. And boy, was that true for me last Sunday. And I'll say more about that later. And that's what you're going to see in these chapters four through six. For every opportunity, there was great opposition. And with every opportunity, with every opposition, there also comes a very, very valuable and a very precious time where we can take and, and learn some really powerful spiritual lessons in the midst of those detours and those delays. So last Sunday, as we started looking, uh, we started looking at kind of the three most prominent uh, opposition the Jewish people faced there in Ezra chapter four through six. We also kind of looked at how they responded and how they made that an opportunity to grow in their, in their walk with God and to be able to continue moving the work of God forward. The first opposition they faced there in chapters four through six was compromise. Ezra chapter four, beginning in verse one, it says the enemies of Judah and Benjamin. Again, these are the two tribes of the 12 tribes of Israel. The tribes of Judah and Benjamin heard that the Jewish exiles were rebuilding a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel. So they approached Zerubbabel and the other leaders and they said, let us build with you for we worship your God just as you do. We have sacrificed to him ever since King Arshadon of Assyria brought us here. And again, if you were here last Sunday, you'll remember that these people who were offering to help the, the uh, Jewish people were what were the beginning of what became known as Samaritans. And we read a lot of them in the New Testament because Jesus had a lot of encounters with Samaritan people. So they were well known and had been around for a long, long time. You may also remember that Samaritans and Jews never really got along. The Jews despised the Samaritans. Samaritans despised the Jews. 
And one of the issues that really kind of caused the dislike between uh, the two was because the Samaritans did recognize the God of Israel. They did worship the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. But they also worshiped and served other false pagan gods. And the Jewish people, they were committed to worshiping the one true God. As a matter of fact, it's one of the lessons they learned there in Babylon was that they were not going to worship uh, other gods, but they were going to remain faithful and true to the one God, the God of Isaac, Abraham, and Jacob, to worship and to serve him alone. The Samaritan people were willing, again, to acknowledge the God of Israel, but they also wanted to mix in other religions and worship and serve multiple gods. And so the Jewish people kind of shunned them in order not to allow their faith in God to be compromised. So Zerubbabel and the other leaders there in Ezra, they refused their assistance because they did not want themselves or the Jewish exiles tempted in any way to compromise their faith in God. As I said last week, the temptation to compromise our faith in God is nothing new. Every generation, every church, every believer faces the temptation to compromise their faith in God, their faith and trust in Christ, their faith and trust in God's work all the time. Every one of us, we're tempted at times to kind of water down the gospel message so as not to offend or to present the message of salvation without repentance or to embrace sin as a way to love the sinner. Like I said last Sunday, once you start compromising in one area, it becomes very easy to kind of just begin compromising in other areas as well. Once you start entertaining false religious ideas, it will not be long before the church is full of, um, and compromised uh, by religious false teachings. Like those Jewish exiles there in chapter four, we must hold fast and tight to the word of God in every area of life of faith and be unwilling to compromise or to mix the Christian faith with any other religion. And just as Zerubbabel and the other leaders uh, there in Ezra saw it as part of their responsibility to oversee the work in rebuilding the temple, they also saw themselves as leaders who had responsibility to protect the Jewish exiles from following after false gods and false teachings. The same is true for the church leadership today. That is why we have elders, that, that Paul established elders in the New Testament church. Part of their responsibility as elders is to make sure that the church is moving and remaining true uh, to the uh, faithful and true teachings of God's word. And whenever a church gets off course or if compromise or false teaching ever begins to creep into the church, it's the responsibility, the role of the elders uh, to bring correction uh, to that and, and to restore biblical teaching in the church. And so again, that temptation to compromise is always there, but so is God's remedy in the solution of godly mature leadership. Now, even though we didn't get to the other two temptations they faced there in Ezra 4 through 6 last Sunday, I want to share the other two, but I'm going to flip the order this morning. The second opportunity I was prepared to talk upon last Sunday was uh, that oppos the opposition of accusation, but the one I want to focus on this morning first is the third one that I plan to talk about, and that was distractions. 
believe it or not, this was the third opposition that really kind of caught me off guard uh, last week. It really derailed me and it derailed the message. So I wanna just talk about this third opposition and if we have time, I'll come back to accusation. For those of you who were not here last Sunday morning, there was a lot of things going on during the sermon time that started mounting and accumulating for me in terms of distractions. There were people getting up and down, moving in and out of the service, talking, playing around. I finally said something in hopes of, of trying to bring it to an end. However, as the sermon continued, so did the distractions. And finally, there just came a place and a point in the sermon where I became so overwhelmed by what was going on that I just completely shut down in a way I never have before. And I just walked off the platform, leaving the congregation, you, totally hanging. No prayer, no direction, just an abrupt ending. I went home that morning, and I'm not telling you this to feel sorry for me. I'm not a victim. Went home that morning, and for the next 24 hours, I felt completely devastated. And I'm sure many of you had a similar reaction. That morning on the platform, the hours that followed, I felt completely overwhelmed. Defeated, dishonored, disrespected, and just this feeling, does any of this matter? Do I matter? Does this church matter? Is what I'm doing here matter? Or am I just showing up in places here and there and collecting a paycheck? Does any of this have any spiritual value? I've never felt that strongly that way before. And unfortunately, it happened on a Sunday morning during the sermon time. And I was completely unprepared to deal with it. And I was not able to finish the service. And I walked off the platform frustrated overwhelmed and I was angry so let me just start off by apologizing to you my reaction was not helpful and it was not healthy it was not godly and it was not God honoring the majority of you here last Sunday did not deserve that kind of a response because many of you were engaged and we're not part of the distractions that were taking place. I've met with and I've processed this event with several very helpful, mature people, including my wife, hoping to better understand my reaction to the distractions. And I'll continue to do that in hopes of better understanding what happened, what happened inside of me, what caused me to respond the way that I did and to work to make sure that that never happens again. Like I said to Janie, why did this create such a strong reaction in me? Why couldn't I just block it out, ignore it, just keep going? Those are questions I'll continue to ask and process. I owe that to you and I owe that to myself. I apologize to my wife, I apologize to my daughter for any chaos, embarrassment or confusion that I may have caused them. So please accept my heartfelt Apology to those of you who were here last Sunday 
And please know I am continuing to process the events of last Sunday. Having said all that, let me just share some things I've learned from those of you that shared with me this past week some observations you made, some observations I've made looking back on all of this. First of all, I came to understand there was a lot more going on last Sunday morning, even more than I realized. And it was happening before the sermon ever started. One of the worship leaders was sharing that last Sunday, as they were here on the platform leading worship, they looked out into the congregation and they were so thankful to see so many people engaged uh, in genuine worship and some who you know, appeared to be worshiping. And as the, the worship leader continued kind of watching uh, these individuals, she came to realize that uh, the people were not worshiping. They were actually mocking and making fun of those around them who were truly worshiping. Again, you saw it in the opening video this morning, Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the advice of the wicked, nor does he stand in the way of sinners, nor does he sit in the assembly of mockers. As I thought about that, I tried to put myself into the shoes of those who were on stage trying to lead worship. And then you see something like that happening began to wonder, what kind of an effect does that have on them, their ability to lead? What kind of an effect would that have on you or me if they were the one that were being mocked? And what effect do you think that that has on the spiritual atmosphere of our church in the sanctuary? As I kind of began to wonder, is that part of what I was picking up on during the message? Possibly, I don't know. Again, my reaction to it if that was part of what I was sensing was not appropriate, but again, it may explain part of what I was feeling and maybe just cause me to kind of just completely shut down. I shared with some of you the story that shortly after I'd become a Christian, I was attending a church where one Wednesday evening, the pastor was giving a Bible study. And as the pastor was teaching, I kind of became aware of some mild commotion going on behind me. I didn't know exactly what it was, but after a couple of minutes of it, I just remember the pastor abruptly stopping the Bible study, the Bible teaching, closed his Bible, and he looked at the congregation, and he said, you have grieved the heart of God. And he just walked out of the church building and went home. Left the entire congregation just sitting there in stunned silence. It never happened again as long as I was there. We learned a valuable lesson that we should never take lightly or trivialize the presence of God. And I believe the activity of mocking grieves the heart of God. And it has the potential to shut down the flow and the activity of God. We also had a gentleman who was manifesting over here in the overflow room to something I was saying and it was starting to cause a commotion. It kind of caught my attention and maybe like some of you, I was kind of trying to look over and to try to figure out what was going on. I could tell by uh, the body language that it wasn't good. So that kind of had my attention. 
trying to figure out what was going on over there, where is this going, and it was all happening toward the front of the overflow, so I'm sure everyone behind that noticed as well. So you factor that into the equation of, Saturday, of Sunday morning. You know, Dave Muth was in the back of the room, Steve Tass was down on the security cameras, and they told me there was a lot going on last Sunday. They said more than you even realized. And it kind of got me to thinking, do you realize that every time somebody would get up and go out of the sanctuary during the service, that Dave Muth has to disengage from the service, and he gets up and he graciously opens the door for them, and then he's got to go out there and kind of watch to see what they're doing, especially if it's someone that he doesn't know. And you multiply that by 10, 15 people doing that, and then ask yourself, what kind of a distraction is that for him? What kind of a distraction does that create for people around them? Going out causes distractions. Coming back in causes distractions, especially if you're sitting somewhere over here and it takes you going clear down and clear over to get out and then to come back in, clear over and clear back up. And I get it, there are times where you need to leave and come back in. And I'm not here to make anybody feel bad who's had to do that or may have to do that in the future. But again, I think it's important to realize and to know the impact of what that does. And the more it happens, especially in one service, the greater the distractions become and you are shifting people's attention away from what God may be attempting to do. Now here's what I greatly appreciate about some of you, who for whatever reason you've said to me, I can't make it through an entire service without having to use the restroom. What I appreciate about you is you choose to sit in a spot where it will create the least amount of distractions. Some of you will sit maybe way far back in the overflow some of you sit very close to the back door there so that if you do have to get up and go out during the service, that it's barely noticeable. So I just want to say thank you for your consideration of me and those around you. I feel like as Zerubbabel and other church leaders, that we must take seriously the unnecessary and frivolous distractions because many times those distractions, again, have the potential to block or to impede the flow and the activity of the Spirit of God. And those of you that know me know I take that very seriously. And if you don't believe me, ask any of the men who attend our monthly men's breakfast. We meet the second Saturday of each month, eight to nine in the morning. First half hour of that time is spent uh, eating breakfast and fellowship together. The second half hour, we have devotion time. And every time at 8.25, I tell the men five minutes until we begin the devotion time. So if you wanna get more food, more coffee, if you need to use the restroom, now is the time because once the devotion starts, I want you to remain seated so that you're able to give the speaker your full attention and not be distracting those around you. I've had to take bongo drums, tambourines, shakers, all kinds of instruments 
from people during the worship service because they were distracting the worship team and they were disrupting the flow of worship. Again, I have no problem with people playing tambourines, bongos, or any other instrument. But I always tell people, if you're gonna do that, you need to be a part of the worship team. You need to be here uh, on Thursday nights, on Sunday mornings, practicing with them so that you're playing compliments, that it contributes to what the team is doing, not to compete, not to distract. And honestly, I don't like having to confront people when that happens, but I feel very, very strongly about what it does to the flow of worship, so I do it. I can give you several more examples of how I've had to address distractions during these church services over the years. But again, my point is when they happen or continue to happen over a period of time, I believe as the pastor, the leader of the church, it becomes necessary to deal with them and largely that responsibility lands on me as it should. And the vast majority of time, I handle them, I think, pretty well. However, this last Sunday, I didn't. And I regret it. And I sincerely apologize. And trust I will handle it more appropriately next time. I'm so grateful for God's kindness in repentance, that we're able to fall, that we're able to make mistakes, big and little, and that the kindness of God always leads us, it brings us to a place of repentance. Not only am I grateful for that kindness that leads to repentance, but I'm, I'm also grateful for the grace of God that allows me to get back up, to brush myself off, and to move on. And I have repented and I have received and I'm walking in the grace of God in that. And I pray that you would extend to me God's grace in that as well. In the name of Jesus Christ, you yeah. are forgiven. Thank you. Appreciate that. But again, we need to see that just as distractions there in Ezra temporarily caused the work of God to stop, unnecessary and needless distractions can also temporarily stop the work of God from going forward. And so again, I just pledge to work with you, to work with our leaders uh, and us as a congregation, again, to address those uh, in appropriate, in in godly ways uh, when they're occurring going forward. So I wanna just shift and I wanna talk about that final accusation, that opposition that they faced was accusation. And what I find interesting is when the compromise didn't work, the enemies of the Jewish exiles turned to accusation. You find this in Ezra chapter four, verse six. It says, years later, when Xerxes began his reign, the enemies of Judah wrote a letter of accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. I'm not gonna go through the entire letter or the response of King Xerxes in that. You can read the rest of chapter four yourselves and you'll see that both the letter they wrote and the king's response. And basically the enemies of Judah there told King Xerxes, if you allow the continuation of the rebuilding of the foundation, allow the temple to be completed, the Jewish people would revolt by not paying their taxes, their tribute, or tolls. And that the king's treasury would have less revenue. In essence, they said, if you allow this work to continue, the people are gonna stop paying their taxes. 
And if that's not enough, they said they'll eventually go on to disrespect you and they'll become insurrectionists and they'll fight against you and your kingdom. They said basically they're gonna become the biggest pain in the neck. It was a nasty and it was a very damaging and yet a very effective letter. And based upon the accusations those enemies of Israel made, King Xerxes demanded the rebuilding of the temple to be stopped lest any of these accusations come true. And again, it, it begs the question, why would God allow the work he commissioned them to do to be stopped? And again, sometimes we mistake God's delays as God's denial. When in truth, God may allow a delay, a denial, a detour in our lives in order to accomplish some greater good that maybe we just don't see at that time in that moment. I remember God delayed Jesus, purposely delayed Jesus going to his very dear friend Lazarus while he was just only sick. And the scripture says that he waited to go to Lazarus and to his family after he died. And Jesus did that in order that he might demonstrate to Mary and to Martha and to all who were there at that time that he was the resurrection and the life, that he indeed had the ultimate power even over death. So never assume that God's delays are his denials. When you read that story, both Mary and Martha said to Jesus, if only you had been here while he was still sick, my brother would still be alive. If only you weren't delayed, you could have healed him. But because you were delayed, he is dead. And basically Jesus kind of tells them in a roundabout way, my delay is not a denial. Your brother shall live again. It's also important to remember, just because a work of God has been delayed on the outside, doesn't mean that God is not still actively at work on the inside. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. And he said, because I preach this great news, I am suffering and have been chained like a criminal, but the word of God cannot be chained. In other words, Paul's saying, even though I am bound, the work of God cannot be bound. Even though I have been stopped, the work of God has not been stopped. And again, while we may experience delays and detours, God's word will never be delayed or detoured. The apostle Paul said this about Satan in 1 Thessalonians 2.18. He said, I very much wanted to come to you and I tried again and again, but Satan prevented me. Again, there just are times for reasons that are above my pay grade that Satan is allowed to use distractions to prevent us from accomplishing things. But again, it's important to remember that, that while Satan may temporarily delay God's work, he can never ultimately deny or defeat God's work. And needless to say, not much has changed in the tactics of accusation from the day of Ezra to now in trying to stop God's people or to delay God's work. Accusation can, and it does have spiritual power as a spiritual attack against a person, a family, a church, or a nation. And again, Satan really relies, he requires two major weapons, deception and accusation, both on which rely on the power 
of the tongue. When he cannot get us through deception, he resorts to accusation to frustrate and to hopefully shut us down. That's why in Revelation 12, chapter 12, verse 10, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. That's his full-time occupation. He's constantly making accusation in the heavenly realms against the sons and daughters of God. He also accuses us directly by speaking to our inner spirit. I believe I read... I believe I felt some of that even last Sunday. He accuses us directly in our spirit. No one's listening to you. What you're saying doesn't matter. So whenever a thought comes to your mind like you're a failure, no one likes you. You'll never amount to much. You can't do anything right. Nobody likes you. That is the voice of the accuser because we know that the Holy Spirit would never talk to us like that. So Satan and his demons are constantly trying to tear us down by planting negative thoughts in our minds about ourselves and about others. Whereas Satan is the accuser, the Bible says Jesus is the intercessor. Hebrews chapter seven, verse 24 through 25 says, but he, meaning Jesus, because he continues forever has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he and he alone is able to save to the uttermost those who come unto God by him, since he ever lives to make intercession for them. Do you realize as a son, as a daughter, a father God, Jesus is seated right now in the heavenly realms at the right hand of God, the Father, and it says he is interceding, he is praying for us. Talk about an incredible prayer partner. This is one of his divine functions and he delights in it. This is one of his divine functions as the resurrected son of God and he is interceding and he is praying for us things like our sanctification. He's praying for our deliverance from our enemies that we would overcome the troubles, the challenges, the mountains of this world just to name a few. And so the enemies of the Jewish exiles, there they began making accusation against them and they accused them of all kinds of things, some true and some false. And it was all in an attempt to convince the king to stop the rebuilding. And it worked, but only for a while. As I stated earlier, just because God's work may be delayed or detoured outwardly for a time, God is more than able and committed to working in other ways, mainly inwardly. Think about a few of the Beatitudes Jesus taught there in Matthew 5, specifically the one found in verse 11 through 12. God blesses you when. Now, if you didn't know what followed that, I believe every one of us that would just pique our interest. That would pique our curiosity because we want to be blessed. And so when we see those four words, God blesses you when, we want to we wanna know what follows. All of us, again, we want to be blessed. So naturally, we would want to know what do we have to do to be able to position ourselves to receive God's blessing 
that we would be determined to, to do whatever follows because of what it would produce. And the problem is, it's not what most of us would expect or really want. Because here's what it says, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. So God is using something. He's allowing something. He's allowing this to happen to us outwardly. And, and it says so that he can produce something inwardly. So as we're being mocked and we're being taunted and we're being ridiculed because of our faith, that, that's what's happening on the outside. What God is wanting to do on the inside is to be able to give us a spirit of rejoicing. Every one of us here, none of us enjoy being mocked or persecuted. No one likes to be lied about or all sorts of evil things being said or done to us just because we have followed, chosen to follow Jesus. And then to be told to rejoice in the midst of that happening is not an easy or desirable thing because it goes against our human nature. It's probably the one thing I needed to feel. It was maybe the one thing I needed to allow the Holy Spirit to produce in me last Sunday was again that ability to rejoice in the midst of what was happening. So again, it's, it's not easy. It's not natural. It, it tends to fight against every fiber of our being. It's not our normal reaction to that kind of treatment and that is the whole point. To rejoice in the face of that kind of treatment is not of this world. To be able to rejoice, that, that, that response, that brings forth, that makes visible a different kingdom, the kingdom of God. And God is at work in us and through us in very unpleasant situations in order to develop and to manifest a reaction that is totally of a different kingdom, a kingdom that is not of this world, and that is the kingdom of God. So again, when there are delays, detours, when there are those denials of God's will, of his plans and his purposes for us, again, just be on the lookout for the other ways that God is at work in your life, in your circumstance, and just know and believe that eventually there will come a time where those delays and those detours are gonna give way. And those plans and purposes of God will resume. I think it's important to always remember nothing is ever wasted with God. And that's part of what I'm taking away from what happened for me personally uh, last Sunday. Nothing is wasted and he will never be defeated. Amen? Let's stand together this morning. Father, again, we just thank you.
for your power, your presence in this place this morning. And God, we thank you, Lord, that you have a plan and a purpose for everything that happens. That God, you're able to work together all things together for goodness, for your goodness to prevail, for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And Father, there are times where we can get so overwhelmed and we can feel so defeated by the things that are happening that they can become so overwhelming that God oftentimes it's so easy to lose sight of you in the midst of that that God you have not left us you've not abandoned us but God you are actively present that you are actively at work working to bring forth a greater purpose than anything we could ever hope or imagine So God, I I just pray for any here this morning that maybe their lives right now, Lord, it just feels like they're in a place of delay, of detours, of dead ends this morning. God, I just pray again, Lord, that you would help them to see that this is not permanent. This is temporary only. And that, God, you would be able to give them the, the foresight, the insight, Lord, to be able to see all of the other ways that you are at work. So, Father, again this morning, we just, I thank you for this example, Lord. I thank you how you've helped me to apply this even to my own personal life in this last week. And, God, I thank you for the opportunities. And, Lord, to also be aware of the opposition that comes with that. So, Lord, that we're not caught off guard, that we're not taken unaware, that we're taken by surprise, God, but just to know that with every opportunity, there's going to come opposition. And yet, God, by your Holy Spirit working in us, you've equipped us, Lord, to be able to just work through and to remain victorious in spite of those delays, those detours, and those dead ends. As I prayed this morning in our our prayer time this morning, God, again, just ask, Lord, just teach us to know how to wait upon you. So many times, God, when things happen to us, we just react out of the flesh rather than just pausing and taking that time to just wait upon you, to allow you to show up, God, to allow you to give us the words to to inspire our actions, God, that would be of another kingdom, your kingdom. So often, God, we manifest our responses really are of this world. They're of this kingdom. They're of our flesh. But oh God, if you could just teach us, Lord, to just wait upon you and know that, God, you have a plan, you have a purpose, you have a way forward. So, God, I just pray, Lord, you would instruct and just teach our hearts in that, in that wisdom, Father, to know to wait on you, to know that it's your problem first and foremost. This is your situation. This is your circumstance to deal with. We may be in it, we may be affected by it, but you're the one that can do all things. That everything with you is possible. So again, Lord, I just pray for those here this morning that are in those delays, those detours, those dead ends, that again, God, you would just strengthen their resolve 
that having, that, that, you know, having done all, they stand, continue to stand, to never waver, to never give up, and to never lose hope. We just again thank you for your power, your presence here. Father, again, just thank you for your kindness and repentance. I thank you for your grace in overcoming. We just again thank you for all this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Praise Community Church, including gathering times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.